Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dan Brissett, the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. Thanks for making time to join us today for the first of a three-part online briefing mini-series about rural communities, climate, and COVID-19 recovery. Our panelists today will provide an update on on-bill financing programs for home energy efficiency improvements. Tomorrow and Thursday, panels will look at the impacts of the pandemic on the biofuels industry and the communities that help support and then the dual threat of natural disasters during the time of a major public health crisis. Be sure to visit www.esi.org to register for the entire mini-series. But if you miss one live, you'll be able to find an archived webcast and presentation materials on the website, and written summaries will also be available. Over our decades-long history, ESI has long put a special emphasis on understanding the impacts of climate change on rural areas, as well as the solutions that we see taking root and making a positive difference. According to the census, about 97% of the land mass of the United States is rural, but only about one in five Americans live there. Rural areas are defined literally by distance, distance from urban centers, distance between neighbors, and long expanses with little to zero human habitation. Rural areas also have certain characteristics that have drawn our attention. A lot of our agriculture production comes from areas with relatively sparse population density. Urbanization has decreased the percentage of the U.S. population that lives in rural areas. Rural families pay, on average, about 40% more for energy compared to their urban counterparts. And while there are differences by region, in general, rural households have a lower medium income, although that does not necessarily equate to more families in poverty. These characteristics mean that climate change affects rural areas differently than cities, whether that involves the type or frequency of natural disasters or the sensitivity of families to more expensive energy. All of that is compounded and not really in any good ways by our present situation. The big stories of coronavirus, COVID-19, so far have mainly featured urban areas, Seattle, New York City, metropolitan Washington, DC. But as the pandemic spreads, the hotspots are increasingly in urban or rural areas. Just this morning, if you check current data from state and local health officials, you see rising, actually accelerating caseloads in Iowa, South Carolina, West Texas, Arkansas, and other rural parts of the country. I make no claim to be a public health expert or epidemiologist, but I'm still very concerned for our friends and neighbors who live in these areas. On top of that, we're about to hit our summer stride, which brings with it extreme heat and humidity, hurricanes, and other forms of severe weather. To us at EESI, all this means we need to take some time to raise awareness of how these issues, mainly climate change and COVID-19, are currently affecting rural areas. And importantly, what rural communities are doing in response to mitigate and adapt, and adapt to these increased risks. Tomorrow afternoon, we will look at the bioeconomy, which supports many rural communities and produces products like biofuels that are better for the environment and people than fossil fuels. And on Thursday, we will convene a panel to look at severe flooding. Again, please visit www.esi.org to register for the complete online briefing mini-series. But today, we welcome uh, we start by welcoming our friends from the world of cooperative businesses to share an update on what their members are doing to help rural families lower their utility bills, make their homes more energy efficient, healthy and comfortable and resilient. A cooperative business or co-op for short is a company owned and operated by the people who use its products and services. A great number of rural households rely on co-op utilities for electricity as well as clean energy program offerings. That's mainly the focus today, on-bill financing programs to help make affordable capital more accessible to rural customers for cost-effective energy efficiency projects. 
For almost a decade, EESI has supported co-ops in development and implementation of on-bill financing, which very briefly involves a low-cost loan made available by the utility and repaid as a line item on the customer's utility bill. One final bit of logistics before we get started. Because we're online today, I cannot call on you if you have a question. So please follow EESI on Twitter, at EESI Online, and send in your questions that way. If you prefer, you can also send an email to EESI at EESI.org. We will draw from your question submissions after we hear from our panelists. And now without further ado, our first two panelists are Rob Artis and Jay Kirby. Rob is the President and Chief Executive Officer for Santee Electric Cooperative, Inc., headquartered in Kingstree, South Carolina. As a proud native of his area, he oversees planning, organizing, and directing the day-to-day -day operations of the cooperative. Santee Electric provides power to nearly 45,000 accounts in Clarendon, Florence, Georgetown, and Williamsburg counties. James W. Kirby Jr. is Vice President of Public Affairs for Santee Electric Cooperative. Jay has more than 30 years of experience with residential energy efficiency and commercial energy management. Jay holds certifications through the Building Performance Institute as a building analyst professional, envelope professional, and manufactured home professional. And all of that means he knows a lot about energy efficiency in people's homes. Jay, Rob, or actually I should say Rob, Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. I really look forward to your presentations. Well, thank you, Dan, and uh, and good afternoon, everybody. Um, we're we're delighted to have an opportunity to talk to every everybody about what uh, the program that we have here at Santee Electric. Um, we've got, uh, in addition to the forty-five thousand uh, accounts that we have, we have about thirty-six thousand members uh, at Santee Electric. Um, that's because a lot of we have a lot of farm accounts. A lot of folks have multiple accounts. Um, one interesting thing, since we're going to be talking about people's power bills, one interesting thing to note is that we are in a part of the United States where most folks try to heat their homes with electric heat. Um, because of that, that makes Santee Electric a winter peaking cooperative. Uh, a lot of utilities have a, have a summer peak, and we do have a summer peak, but our predominant peak is, uh, is the winter peak because we have so many people heating with, uh, with heat pumps and electric resistive heating. Uh, and Jay will explain a little bit about how that um, that causes a problem and uh, what we do to try to help those folks. Um, I've, been, I've been at Santee Electric for nearly five years, uh, but I've been in the co-op business for about 20 years. And when I first came to Santee Electric, I came here from a co-op that did not have a Help My House program. It was another South Carolina co-op. Uh, so that one of the first things I wanted to do when I got here was sit down and talk to Jay and I said, Jay, you know, obviously the, uh, the co-ops all had this choice in South Carolina about, you know, back around 2010, uh, whether or not to get involved in the Help My House program. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to know how it was that Santee Electric got involved in this. And, and Jay said, you know, Rob, I've been talking to people for a long time about what we could do to help them with their power bills. And I would go to them and, and tell them about the things that they needed to fix in their homes. And it just got to the point where I, I really got tired of telling people that um, I, I don't have another way to help you. And so when this Help My House pilot program came along, uh, Jay and Santee Electric really embraced this as an opportunity to help folks that may not have the, uh, the money to, to make these major fixes to their homes. Um, 
but they helped them to be able to finance those projects and, and do things that were absolutely necessary. And so they've been able to do a tremendous amount of, of great work here at Santee Electric. So, um, but I, I knew that I could do this presentation without an expert like Jay. And so my, my real honor is for an opportunity to toss things over to Jay. So uh, Jay, why don't you tell these folks uh, about the wonderful program that you started here at Santee Electric? Thank you, Rob. Let me pull up a PowerPoint here. There we go. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, today, I'd just like to share with you a little about our program called Help My House. This way allows us a way to help improve energy efficiency in existing home using on-bill financing. Some quick basics on Help My House. It's a very convenient program. It, um, it allows on-bill repayment. In 2010, the South Carolina legislator passed a law that allowed utilities in South Carolina to provide on-bill financing. And it also improves comfort and energy savings for our members. And the program also provides consistent quality. Um, we use trained, qualified BPI contractors, and BPI is the Building Performance Institute. And the co-op, Santee Electric, manages the quality assurance and quality control. And we do this by providing uh, bookend audits. So we do a comprehensive audit on the front end of the program to find out how much air infiltration the house has and how leaky the ductwork is. And then if the house decides to go through the program, the contractor does the work. And once he finishes, we send in a third party auditor to do a audit on the back end. And on the back end, you know, they do a blower door test to see how much infiltration has been reduced in the building envelope and also duct leakage reduction. And we require duct leakage to be less than 5%. So we, we thrive on that quality um, assurance. Our members love that we have somebody on the back end checking behind them and looking out for them. Uh, we do affordable financing. We have a 4% low interest loan that's tied to the meter. It's not tied to the actual member itself. And if the home sells, the loan transfers to the new homeowner. So they kind of have two options there. Uh, either they can settle the loan at closing or it can transfer uh, to the new homeowner. And we've seen that work both ways. And the great part about it is, uh, like Rob mentioned earlier, when we did audits on homes, people typically didn't have the money to make these improvements. So the Help My House allows them to do with no money down, no credit checks required. The only credit checks we do is with the cooperative. And we have a very liberal policy there. Um, they, could, they can only have one disconnect in a 12 month period. So they can be late every month. And what you find with a lot of homes that have high energy use, they're just not able to pay those bills. And so this kind of helps them get back on track. But with Help My House, we're looking at fast payback improvements. So we're trying to pick the low hanging fruit. We wanna make sure we seal and insulate the home and the ductwork, replace electric furnaces with heat pumps. And like we mentioned earlier, a lot of our housing stock is manufactured housing. So probably roughly 30% of our housing stock is in manufactured homes. And as we know, most manufactured homes come with electric furnaces with electric resistant heat, which can cause drive up bills for our members in the wintertime. So this gives us the opportunity to change those out to high efficiency heat pumps. 
and um, you know help our members save there. And it also helps the cooperative with its um, peak demand savings. And we also want to repair and replace older heat pumps. So how did we get started in Help My House? Uh, like Rob mentioned earlier, back with the economic downturn in 2009, 2010, you know, we noticed a lot of our members suffering, having trouble to pay bills uh, when the economy went down. Uh, I think it was another virus back at that time. So, you know, we reached out to our G&T, uh, which is Central Electric Co-op and our statewide electric cooperatives of South Carolina. So we wanted to try to develop a program that would, um, you know, be able to help our members save money and give them the opportunity to borrow money with no money down to make these improvements to their home. So we started a pilot in 2011 to kind of test this program model of Help My House. And we had eight of the 20 cooperatives in the state, including us, that participated and we weatherized 125 homes. And uh, for the next year, I think it was 2012, we monitored the energy use of those 125 homes and we were excited to find that we reduced energy use by more than 30% in those homes. Some fared better, higher than 30%, some maybe a little bit less, but 30% was around the average then. So we saved participants more than $200 a year after the loan payments. And we found in some cases, we've saved members more than $200 a month. So homes that were in extremely poor condition, um, you know, during the peak winter months and peak summer months, we saved them upwards of $200. The homeowners were, members were immediately more comfortable in their home. And all these participants were surveyed at the end of the program. And we also had a lot of happy homeowners and happy members, which makes us happy. But 96% of them were satisfied or more satisfied with their co-op. And 90% says comfort has improved in their home. And 90% was satisfied with the post-retrofit electric bill. So we were excited about that. So Santee Electric decided to participate in that program. And to date, this is a little bit about our numbers. We've uh, weatherized 289 homes to date. We mainly started off using our own funds and uh, red leg funding. So we've loaned out so far about $2.8 million. And our average loan amount runs around $9,900. And the part we're most excited about is our loan default rate, which uh, right now is still at 0%. So we've had some of these homes that's been into bankruptcy, uh, our members had trouble or either the homeowners passed away and uh, you know the home sat dormant for a while, but then when the home was purchased or taken over by a new member, uh, they were able to pick back up on those loan payments. So we're excited about that default rate. We hope it continues. So Help My House in 2020, um, we had kind of ran out of our funding. Uh, we exhausted our red leg loan and the funds we had. We were, um, signed up to participate in the Rural Energy Savings Program by RUS. It, it took us a little bit longer to get, get in there than we thought. So um, we kind of went a little dormant through 2018 to kind of the summer of 2019. But um, happy to say we're up and going now. We've got um, $13 million for the state of South Carolina, which Santee Electric has got 2.5 million that's available for its members. 
And uh, our KW Savings is uh, selling the carbon offsets to Duke University. So how has Help My House fared during COVID-19? Uh, we had to shut our program down on March the 18th for the safety of our members. Um, but I'm happy to state that we restarted things yesterday on Monday, June the 15th. Uh, we started with limited services right now. We're going to try to limit our interaction with our members. We're mainly going to just focus on HVAC and ductwork. Uh, weather's starting to get hot here in South Carolina, hot and muggy. And so we've already had a lot of members calling um you know their units out so we're going to try to get them satisfied and taken care of we're going to de delay the testing the bookend audits that i talked about until we think it's safe for everybody we don't want to be in there with blower doors moving air and things like that so um we're going to delay that we'll uh, test at a later date whenever it's safe so currently we have about 47 homes members that are on our waiting list ready to go and so we started um, calling them and trying to get an appointment set up we're still going to go in and do a walkthrough type audit and um, you know, we've got some COVID-19 release forms where we try to ask our members to make sure that nobody's been sick in that household because we don't want to bring harm to our Santee Electric employees or, or any contractors that are going in there but our contractors are really excited and they're ready to go um, they kind of made it through this three-month drought, you know, off the PPP plan where they were able to, and they were still able to do some work on their own. But that's all I have for you today, and I'll, I'll turn it back over to Dan. Great. Thanks, Jay, and thanks, Rob, uh, for your presentation, and thanks for joining us, and um, uh, congratulations on a successful program, and it sounds like you have, or you just said, that you have a great waiting list ready to go. It's uh, really impressive program. And I noticed, Jay, one of your slides, uh, you had a photo of a couple folks inspecting some energy efficiency measures. And one of them, the one wearing a suit, was Representative Jim Clyburn from South Carolina, who uh, was one of the, um, I guess you might say, founding members of the House uh, when it comes to the Rural Energy Savings Program. And so I just wanted to make sure that he got a shout out. He's been a big supporter of these kinds of programs. Uh, if you missed any of what Rob or Jay had to say, just as a reminder, um, everything will be available and posted online uh, after uh, today. Uh, may take a couple days for some of the written summaries to appear, but everything will be there. So visit EESI.org um, if you missed anything. And now we're going to move to our third panelist. Um, our third panelist is Kate Latour. Kate is the Director of Government Relations for the National Cooperative Business Association, CLUSA International and has been with the organization since February of last year. Before joining NCBA CLUSA, she worked for United States Senator Tammy Baldwin working on economic policy issues. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I didn't know this, is currently pursuing a master's degree in government at Johns Hopkins. And Kate, thank you for taking some time away from your work at NCBA CLUSA and your summer studies. Um, yes. <laughs> probably, hopefully enjoying a little bit of a break from uh, from school for the summer. But thanks so much. I really look forward to your presentation. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Let me go ahead and share my screen. There we go. Um, so I thought it might be helpful first um, just to give a little bit of background on NCBA CUSA for those um, who may not be familiar. But we are the Apex Trade Association for Cooperative Businesses across all sectors of the economy. 
um, and some of our you know um, association members and different sectors are, are listed here um, we have been around for over a hundred years um, and in addition to our domestic membership we are also an international development organization um, and so we helped to found um, the USAID program called Cooperative Devel Development Program. Um, and so not only are we working really hard on um, making sure the co-op model is being used here in the United States, but also um, helping to empower people across the world as well. Um, so today, um, there are about 2 million jobs um, provided by cooperative businesses. Um, about 12% of people across the world are a member of at least one cooperative business. In the US, that number is about one in three people. Um, some, just some data here on um, the contribution that co-ops make to the economy. Um, really, I think the compelling 75 billion in annual wages um, and just the higher degrees of reinvestment um, that, that co-ops contribute to their local economy. Um, and then I always um, think the electric cooperatives um, statistics and data are so um, compelling and impressive that they're powering 20 million homes, schools, and businesses. Um, so really doing some great work. Um, and I, oops, let me, I think, you know, really to just touch on how we got there um, for, for a very short history lesson, um, you know, agriculture co-ops started in the mid to late 19th century from um, Northern European farmers who were familiar with this model um, before they came to the United States and wanted to remain competitive in the marketplace um, as things were changing. So they organized, raised public awareness, and were successful in advocating for policy change um, that led to greater technical assistance and access to finance and other support primarily through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, and in the mid-1930s, policymakers again looked to that co-op model um, to solve the latest challenges when only 10% of rural households at the time had access to reliable electricity. Farmers advocated and policymakers agreed that using the co-op model um, would be a way to solve this challenge. So um, through executive action and later codified through legislation, um, the Rural Electrification Administration was established and Within about 20 years, um, more than 90% of households had electricity. So I think really the, the electric co-ops have been so integral, um, especially in rural America where private investor owned companies um, aren't providing utilities that they have stepped up in a really big way. Um, so co-ops, like I said, are, are, they exist to meet needs in communities that private markets um, and government services aren't meeting. So as a result of being owned and controlled by the people who use the service, co-ops have a longer lifespan than non-cooperative businesses. Um, and with the security of knowing that they're so deeply rooted in the community, they're more likely to spur further economic development. And then I think the um, you know, really fine point on, on cooperative ownership is um, as a co-op owner, any money that is not reinvested into the co-op um, for future use, research and development and advancement is returned to the, the folks who own and control the business. Um, so I think there are so many examples of co-ops investing in their members of, in community, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about USDA's Rural Energy Savings Program. 
Um, and in doing so, I also really want to commend EESI um, on their terrific support and that they provide to electric co-ops um, and municipalities um, looking to participate in this program and helping them to apply for those funds. Um, so to set up the need for a program like RESP, just to um, really reiterate the point that Dan made earlier, um, you know, rural Americans face significantly and disproportionately higher energy costs. Um, the rural households spend about 40% more um, of their income on energy bills than their non-rural counterparts. So um, I think these, it's important to note as well that the the um, disproportionate effects are really significant on elderly and low income households, um, even more so in rural communities. So a program like RESP, which covers the upfront costs of energy efficiency improvements is a critical lifeline. Um, you know, I think Jay mentioned that the average um, loan amount was about $9,900 and that is an expense that most people would have a really hard time um, coming up with at the front end on their own. So this innovative financing mechanism is really important. Um, I also think a really important detail is that the co-op manages the project from start to finish. Um, and again, no out-of-pocket investments at the front end. Um, and then the being tied to the home and where the investment is rather than the individual um, are all really important points of this program. Um, and I, I won't repeat Jay and um, Jay's presentation on how much um, it can improve people's energy bills and um, as well as for the co-op. Um, I think a really demonstrating the success of the program um, is, is how satisfied people are with their co-op um, and, and as a result are more likely to stay in their homes and be a part of the local workforce. So in other words, a dissatisfaction in their home or inability to afford the utilities is not driving people to look elsewhere for work or for their general livelihoods. It sounds obvious, but I think it's worth pointing out um, that when people spend less on their energy bills, they have more money in their pockets um, and they can either invest in themselves for their retirement or circulate that money back into their local economy. Um, with more discretionary income to spend elsewhere, other small businesses are also supported and able to maintain or even grow their workforce. So RESP has really shown that these investments um, covered, especially on the front end, who for people who otherwise may not be able to afford it are good for the households, for the co-op, for the economy, and of course, as energy efficient um, improvements, they are also good for the environment. Um, Given kind of the moment that we're in, I do just want to touch on um, how co-ops can and should be used um, in kind of a post-COVID economy. Um, I think we have seen very clearly that there are disproportionate impacts, um, both in health and economic um, aspects that really, uh, as a nation, we need to look closely at, at those disparities and how co-ops can really help to build a more equitable, inclusive and sustainable economy. Um, they, like I mentioned, co-ops reinvest their local dollars at higher rates because they're locally driven. Um, and because of that fact, they're also more resilient in economic downturns. Um, and I think, again, most importantly, the profits are, are driven by serving their members rather than being the main goal. So one example of co-ops kind of in this post-COVID economy is looking at succession plans for otherwise healthy businesses. Um, the in a lot of communities, especially rural, where there are 
not a lot of buyers, um, rather than risking that business either closing their doors or being sold to kind of a, a big box company, um, the employees, the consumers, and the producers who have helped generate um, that business's success over the years are really viable buyers. They pay fair market value for the business, so the current owner can retire knowing that she or he made um, the money that they deserve on that business. Um, and then also it's just, again, really deeply rooted in the community, so it will continue to serve those, um, provide those goods and services um, that communities depend upon. Um, and I think, you know, the, the close relation to electric co-ops here is, is making sure that there are jobs that are um, continuing to thrive in rural communities and the electric co-ops can continue to provide utility to those businesses and um, the homes of the workers who are employed there. Um, I think there's really a lot of opportunity in various sectors. Um, some of the sectors that we're focusing most specifically on um, are kind of the construction, the heating and air conditioning um, sectors, as well as childcare and home care providers, um, and then also food and grocery stores, um, where we've seen a few examples already where kind of mom and pop are ready to, to close the business or, or no longer be running the business. and um, rather than closing the doors entirely, sell it to either the consumers um, in the community or to the workers who are employed there. Um, I think housing is a really important um, sector as well. Jay mentioned the, the manufactured housing community um, and housing is of course uh, one of the main ways in our country that people um, generate wealth um, and asset building and in manufactured homes, which are traditionally low income residents, um, they're actually paying rent for the land on which their, their home um, exists. And um, so instead, actually, there's been a growing president presence um, through organizations like Rock USA to help those residents purchase the land and become a resident-owned community, um, just like in your utility bills and other sectors that often results in um, lower monthly payments. And also to... Um, I think the, the ownership stake really instigates a point of pride um, and just getting to that quality of life again can really make um, vast improvements. And then um, last but not least, um, you know, I think the bridging the rural energy, the rural divide um, has never been more important, especially as we are working from home um, and for really an unclear amount of time, uh, making sure that broadband investments can continue to help rural Americans to bridge that gap in telehealth services, distance learning, um, and generally just capturing economic potential, whatever their entrepreneurial endeavors are. Um, we've seen in the past three months that having access to internet is really critical. And there are, I think, about 100 electric co-ops that have already um, innovated and expanded their services to their members to include broadband, um, which again, you know, that's, I think, a direct result of the electric co-ops being driven by the needs um, of their members, not by the interests of shareholders, um, and not seeking profit just to seek profit, um, but rather to really make sure that, um, that the co-op is serving the community and can um, really maintain that high quality of life. Um, so I know I'm running out of time, um, but I just want to end kind of where I started to say that co-ops have been a really integral part of solving rural challenges, and now I think is no different. There are um, 
you know, like I said, without access to reliable internet, where we risk really increasing that, um, that, that growing gap in health outcomes, capturing economic opportunity and educational achievement. Um, so it, there, these are just a few examples um, that co-ops can really help to reshape our society and especially to create a more stable and sustainable economy. But I wanna be sure to stay on topic here. So with that, I will turn it back over uh, to Dan. Oops. Thank you, Kate. Uh, I turned my video on and off, double tap. Um, so to fix that. Thank you so much for your great presentation. And um, just so you know, we would have let you go on a couple extra minutes if you'd wanted to. Um, but now we have extra time for questions. So just as a reminder, um, if you uh, would like to ask our panelists a question, there are two ways you can do that. Um, the first is by following us on Twitter at EESI Online. Um, the second is to send us an email at, or excuse me, EESI at EESI.org. And we already are getting questions in. So if you have one that you would like to ask our panelists, um, I suggest that you do that and we'll do our best to get to them. Um, but we're going to start the Q&A. And um, while I miss not being able to do these briefings in person, one of the things that we've been experimenting with since we've been online is this co-moderating format. And so it's always fun to invite one of my ESI colleagues into the briefing um, to help with the Q&A portion. And when it comes to on-bill financing, um, there aren't that many people who are better equipped to lead a Q&A session than my colleague, John Michael Cross. Uh, he is actually based in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, not here in Washington. So we have our, D our world headquarters in Washington, but then we have our satellite office in Minnesota and John Michael, uh, leads that for us and has been working with ESI on bill financing programs and dozens of cooperatives and municipal utilities around the country. So, John Michael, I'll turn it over to you to get started with Q&A. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Hi, everybody. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, uh, Jay, Rob, Kate, thanks for great presentations uh, and for especially for touching on um, how COVID-19 is uh, impacting things on everybody's mind. Uh, so, and, and Jay, you spoke about how uh, the Help My House program is adapting to the virus. And I was wondering, Rob, could you talk a little bit about how uh, uh, the situation is impacting the co-op more broadly and how you all, all are responding to this incredible challenge? Sure, John Michael, I'd be glad to. Uh, this has obviously been a big, a big deal for all of us. Um, you know, we, we know that there are some folks out there who uh, have either lost their jobs or have had, um, you know, at least a reduction in the income that they see. And so it makes it a little bit tougher for them to pay their power bills. Um, one of the things that the governor of South Carolina did very early on was, was made a request uh, to all of the providers, the investor owned utilities and the co-ops in, in general, um, you know, if we could suspend disconnects for non-payment for this period of time while we're asking a lot of folks to shelter in place at home, we, we need you to do that. Um, that's made things kind of interesting uh, for Santee Electric. Uh, for the past three months, uh, whenever folks don't pay their power bill, we, we have not, you know, we haven't turned anybody's power off. Um, we've got a very successful prepay electricity program here. We, we've worked really hard to take a lot of the emotion out of being disconnected for non-payment at Santee Electric because uh, our prepay program allows folks to buy $10 worth of electricity at a time, $20 worth, $50 worth, sometimes $5 worth. Um, so that, you know, when you, 
when you get cut off for non-payment, it's no longer, oh gosh, where am I going to come up with $500 to get my lights turned back on? Uh, for them, uh, having your power turned off is about like someone else uh, running out of milk. Well, I ran out of milk. I need to go buy a little bit more milk. You know, that, that's, that's kind of the way they looked at electricity. Ran out of electricity. Let me go buy $10 worth of electricity. Um, that works fine as long as we can keep sending them that signal that, hey, uh, you, you've used up uh, the, the amount that you paid. The problem that you run into is with these past three months where we haven't disconnected for non-payment, you have folks that are used to dealing with $10 worth of electricity at a time or 20 now having hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars of past due balances because we've taken that stimulus away that says you've used up your money. Uh, so we're, we're working pretty hard with those folks. We've definitely had to make a lot of arrangements uh, with people. Um, but it, it's, it's definitely been a very difficult time because we've got 3,000 accounts that are used to dealing with very small amounts of money. And now those folks have gotten some pretty big, uh, some pretty big past due balances. Of course, we've had to separate our employees. Uh, we have six construction crews. We keep those folks separated from each other so that if you do have a, an infection on one and crew it's not going to contaminate the entire company um, we've asked we've had to shut our lobbies down that's one thing that uh, co-ops pride themselves on is an additional level of, uh, of member service and uh, right now we're not letting anyone come into our building uh, we're doing all of our uh, business through the drive-through or through our mobile apps and things like that so we, we've had to adapt quite a bit and of course we've had a whole lot of uh, meetings and, and staff meetings and board meetings and everything else on all of these uh, wonderful uh, bits of technology like Zoom and uh, WebEx. So, uh, but it, we've, we've been adapting and I've been very proud of our team. Uh, excellent, great. Yeah, uh, always hard to keep the, the Zoom gloom at bay a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I don't think this uh, webinar is contributing to that in the slightest. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Jay, the, the Help My House program design, uh, particularly around eligibility requirements, uh, would seem to make uh, energy upgrades possible for more of uh, Santee's membership. Why was that important for you? Uh, and how has that broader accessibility played out in practice? And then for Kate, uh, what are some of the other steps that co-ops are taking to build a more uh, inclusive economy? Yeah, thank you, John Michael. Um, you know, as a utility, uh, we've had programs in the past. Typically, they're type re rebate type programs. Um, then we've had loan programs where, you know, you had higher interest on loans and you had to do credit checks. So we felt like we were missing a large part of our membership. Um, you know, when we, ha we have a large part of our membership that is kind of at, at poverty level or below. So we wanted to come up with a program that we could reach out and really help those people and, and help my house and, and the rest program is going to help us meet those goals. So out of those 289 homes, we've been able to reach a large portion of that population of membership and really help the ones with the high usage. But, you know, it's there and it's available for everybody. So we're, we're really happy with the program and the way it's gone. I can happen just on kind of the co-op question more broadly. Um, I think we have seen that's it's the nature of co-ops to increase participation and bring people into the fold and, um, you know, especially on kind of the worker and housing side, thinking of people who may not be able to um, afford those big expenses. 
um, of let's say starting a business on your own. Whereas if you are in a co-op, um, it's, it's that a little bit more accessible buy-in where you still have that ownership stake in the business. Um, I think looking at electric co-ops um, and, and energy, energy issues, increasing participation is I think critical um, to building an inclusive economy looking at some of the kind of other programs um, beyond on-bill financing and beyond rest, which are incredibly important, um, but also looking at electric vehicle charging stations. Um, and that is, um, you know, a new opportunity. And if rural, um, rural electric co-ops are supporting that investment, um, it's just a new way for rural communities to participate in the, in the energy economy. Um, I also love the example um, from Bark Electric, they launched a community solar project um, in which, you know, was supports housing uh, or homes rather, um, as well as businesses, but um, importantly, also the schools um, and um, really worked on some innovative financing to make sure that worked for the school districts. But um, not only did that help, uh, they implemented broadband, but the, in the solar capacity, um, not only is it helping the energy efficiency of the school buildings. They also use it as a STEM program and an opportunity for kids to learn um, about solar, solar energy. So um, I think just the different ways that, that co-ops, um, they're really uh, nimble and able to innovate and make sure that they're, they're increasing participation for folks. Excellent, great. Uh, Dan, I think you had a question. I do, actually, it's not just my question. Uh, we're getting questions from um, our audience. And so I'm gonna ask a question from uh, someone who just emailed us. Um, and as a reminder, if you have a question and you'd like to email us, the email address to use is, is eesi at eesi.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at eesi online. This question has to do with RESP and that's come up a couple times. Kate just mentioned it, Jay included it in his presentation. Uh, Rural Energy Savings Program Pro administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Rural Utility Service. The question is, what is the current funding available for RESP? Uh, and uh, a, there's a sort of a corollary question to that, which is uh, a, the program called ECLIP, which is the Energy Efficiency Clean Loan Program, I think, correct? John Michael, is that, I think that's right, ECLIP? We'll go with that. Um, someone can Google it uh, and hit me up in the chat. But um, would one of our, uh, I want to sort of talk a little bit about, I'd like to hear the answer about RESP and sort of what's available because that's an ongoing program. It helps capitalize, help my house way back, but it's still a thing and it's still helping cooperatives. And then Jay and Rob, um, I would really be interested in hearing your opinion about sort of the importance of RESP to help my house at Santee Electric and sort of where you would be without it. Um, it seems like it's a really critical program uh, in the program's history or your program's history. And I was wondering if after um, we sort of get the number out there, you'd be willing to comment on that. So I can touch just on the number side of it a little bit. Um, the most recent um, fiscal year appropriated $12 million um, for REST to leverage that money um, for REST loans. Um, to date, my latest records have over 80 million have been invested um, in, uh, in, program, in REST programs. Um, and I believe that covers just over 20 different rural utilities and just over, uh, actually I believe 14 states by my last count. And that may not seem like a lot of money, but we're talking about pretty significant leverage. So $12 million goes pretty far, tens of millions of dollars. Um, Jay, um, 
what does REST mean to your program? How important has it been? I think RESP is just going to allow us to reach a lot more of our members. Like I mentioned earlier in my presentation, you know, we had to use our own funds, which are limited. Um, and I'll say we had to reach out and, and do a red leg loan, I think, for the second one. And so now having access to $2.5 million um, that we can plan better. And it gives our contract contractors more security and a better feeling knowing that you're not always trouble with running out of funds. So, we think we'll be able to reach out and, and touch and change the quality of life for a lot more of our members with that money. Okay, thanks. Uh, back to you, John Michael. Uh, great. Uh, Kate, how uh, can uh, electric co-ops potentially work with other types of co-ops? Uh, NCBA represents all kinds, uh, maybe finance and agriculture in particular, uh, to pers help pursue energy efficiency savings or even renewable energy? Yeah, and this is um, already happening happening quite a bit. Co-ops operate on seven principles, the sixth of which is co-ops supporting co-ops. Um, so it's kind of ingrained in, in the nature of all cooperative businesses. Um, there has been, I think, a lot of support from electric co-ops and um, farm credit financing to, you know, continue to support co-op development um, and make opportunities more accessible. Um, and one of those things, especially in rural communities, is making sure you can afford utilities. Um, so I think, you know, RESP and, and just the ways in which, even outside of the program, that electric co-ops are willing to um, kind of, again, meet the needs of their members, whatever those needs are. Um, I think, um, Sorry, uh, um, the, you know, in the renewable energy space, it really is holistic. I think the electric co-ops right now we're seeing our farmers and farmer co-ops really experiencing a hard time. Um, and again, making sure that um, the electric co-ops are adapting to make sure that businesses can stay open. Um, and I think beyond the immediate supply chain, it again affects kind of the holistic community. And um, you know, if you don't have the money to pay your bills, then you're not likely to go out to eat at a restaurant or shop at the, you know, your local store. Um, and so really I think it is um, just the way in which electric co-ops um, are, they're ingrained um, and making these communities thrive. And actually there is one other, I was just thinking of the, the state associations and, and Jay mentioned that. Um, I think the state associations are also incredibly important um, in their work. Many of them are economic developers and co-op developers. Um, in addition to kind of the member services um, that associations kind of stick to tried and true. Um, there is in North Dakota, they are working um, to solve food insecurity issues and using the co-op model as a way to solve that. And, um, uh, you know, there is from, from helping with food distribution challenges and again, that kind of hyper-local focus where rather than where big box stores, it's sometimes a little unclear where their food comes from. Um, the food co-ops and food local food distribution make sure that you're supporting local farmers and um, really kind of uh, double down on the local economy. Um, we have another question um, that came in from um, by email, and this one probably is for you, Jay. Um, the question has to, you mentioned that you're sort of the average loan amount um, that, that CNT Electric Cooperative provides. 
Um, how long do customers have to repay that loan? What is the repayment period for um, a loan of that size? Is there a maximum? Is there a minimum? Is there an average? Right. Um, yeah, we can loan anywhere from, you know, 1000 to $15,000. Um, and it's 4% interest again, and we can go to term up to 10 years. So that gives um, a good time to spread that loan over. And Jay, when I introduced you, I listed your certifications and said that you know a lot about energy efficiency. Could you, I have just a follow-up. When you're talking about loan amounts of that range and you're talking about a repayment period of that amount of time, what is it about energy efficiency when you bundle those kinds of improvements, when you do duct sealing, air sealing, uh, heat pump replacement? How does it work in terms of the, 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 the savings? They compound, but when you talk to customers about energy efficiency, what do you tell them about adding those kinds of individual measures together to get more savings? Yeah. You know, we, again, we do the audit on the front end. So we, we look at their past energy usage. You know, we don't want to do anything to jeopardize our members and put them in any kind of financial hardship. So we take a long, hard look at that. Um, you know, we know that we try to pick the measures that are going to give them the best payback. So, you know, typically, you know, around a $10,000 loan, the payment's going to be about $100 a month extra. And so in your, your peak winter months and your peak summer months, you can, you can tend to save that amount. You know, of course, in the shoulder months when you're not using a lot of power, you know, we let them know that their payment can be higher or their bill can be higher by the amount of that payment. So we just want to make sure they know what they're getting into. And, and again, we don't want to cause them any kind of hardship. We only want to try to help. Thanks, Jay. John Michael, back to you. Great. Um, so a, uh, uh, one of the point people at uh, USDA on the Rural Energy Savings Program, turns out is, joy uh, is watching us today, and he uh, sent me a, a, an email letting me know that it's ECLIP is the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Loan Program. Uh, and, uh, so, Bob, thank you for always keeping me straight. Uh, and then also wanted to mention that the REST funds available for this current fiscal year are 178 million of zero loan to rural utilities. My understanding is that there's still a good deal of that uh, available, uh, ready to, to uh, move out the door. Uh, my uh, next question uh, for, for Robin Jay is, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your community solar program and how the goals of that program pair with Help My House. Jay, I'll, uh, I'll start off with that one and then you correct me when I get something wrong. <laughs> um, I, I think the, the co-ops in, in South Carolina in general decided to work together to establish a community solar program through our generation and transmission cooperative. So uh, each, each co-op decided that they would aim for around 250 kW of, uh, of community solar somewhere in their system. Santee Electrics is spread out over two sites one near our headquarters that is already constructed it's 130 kW and then um, another one uh, near one of our district offices that'll be 120 kW. The, the idea behind community solar, I mean, we've got lots of homeowners who have put up uh, solar on the roof or in their yards or whatever the case may be, some of them on adjacent pieces of property and, and we've got rates and riders for, uh, for folks who, uh, who have installed their own solar but the truth is a lot of times there's a lot of upfront expense with that. And so this kind of dovetails into the same help my house issues 
what do you do for the folks who can't come up with that large amount of money up front or who don't necessarily have the tax liability to appreciate the tax credits that you get because of installing uh, solar? So for those folks, the ones who just can't lay out a huge amount of money to start with or who don't need a, a huge tax write-off, we've got this community solar program where basically rather than you putting something on your roof or putting something in your yard, we've got a, a small scale solar farm here at, you know, somewhere that's tied directly into Santee Electric's territory. And uh, by you buying into it, and I, I mean, I, Jay will get the dollar figures right. I won't, but uh, you know, you're talking about 50 bucks once up front and then maybe $10 a month after that. And then you get whatever energy that your panel generates. And so you can look in a, inside the fence and, you know, there's 130 panels and one of those panels is mine and whatever it's generating is, is what I'm getting. Another great thing about doing it that way is we can make sure that we put it near the middle of the system grid. And a lot of times folks will build a big community solar farm and they'll build it where they have lots of wide open spaces but if that doesn't happen to be near our existing uh, bulk power system, it, it might cost them more to get their energy generated from the, you know, from their location back to the grid than they spent just building the solar farm. So by us doing it, we can put it in a place where it's efficient to get it back to the grid. But uh, Jay, why don't you uh, correct those numbers that I tried to guess at and tell them exactly how much it is to participate in a block of our community solar. Yeah, we, we sell it in one KW blocks, like Rob mentioned, it's $50 upfront fee. That's kind of to keep people from jumping in and jumping out of the program. It's uh, $14 a month per block, and they get $0.10 cent per kilowatt hour back for every KW uh, that block generates. So you're pretty much right on there, Rob. That's cool. The community solar projects are so, they're so great. Um, that's such a great innovation. And so congratulations on your work on that. Um, we are getting close, but I think we have time for two more. So I've got one for Kate, and then I think John Michael has one to wrap us up with. Uh, Kate, my question for you is, um, we've talked a lot about sort of the impacts of coronavirus, of COVID-19. Um, you're based in Washington with the ESI. In Washington, up till now, there's been a lot of discussion about sort of how we, what kind of fiscal measures, what kind of policy measures we sort of put in place to um, help with the recovery effort. But there are increasing conversations about what uh, an economic stimulus, sort of a, a post-COVID-19 stimulus might look like. Do you have any, does NCBA CLUSA have any stimulus priorities that would encourage this kind of, uh, these kinds of programs? Yeah, I think, I'm going to take that question back up just one step and first um, thank USDA for their support throughout this. Um, I think that given their extensive history with co-ops, they have been critical um, in making sure that other agencies like the Small Business Administration who are less familiar with the cooperative model um, and how to finance and how to loan, uh, how to lend money um, to that structure, um, it has been a, a lifeline to the entire business model. Um, in that vein, I think we are really supporting a lot of the asks of our members um, in things like a simplified forgiveness for the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, and um, in, we're also making sure that, you know, in any of these future programs that co-ops are eligible. Um, we saw kind of in the immediate right after CARES, um, a great deal of uncertainty of which types of co-ops are eligible. 
They're still fighting that housing co-ops um, while they are um, actively owned and operated by the owners who live there. Um, there's uncertainty in their eligibility for things like the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, and then I think really looking at preserving those businesses through employee and consumer buyouts, um, helping similar types of businesses form purchasing cooperatives to reduce the overhead. Um, think about like your favorite line of restaurants along one of the corridors in DC, um, if they would come together to form a co-op reduce those overhead expenses um, in a sector that already runs really tight bottom lines that could help just even a little bit. Um, and I think really using this as an opportunity to kind of reshape um, how we view ownership and the value of ownership um, from things like your homes, your businesses, the stores you shop at, um, and actually even your data. Um, I know it's something familiar in farming sector, the farming sector, probably more broadly than others, but thinking about the data that you produce as a consumer or the data that you produce as a patient. Um, I use the example of, of 23andMe getting um, significant profits from creating a drug off of the DNA that was submitted through their customers. Well, what if the customers who submitted that DNA that resulted in the drug received that product? So really just kind of um, looking to increase ownership um, and the average person's ownership in, in society um, and really kind of strengthen that foundation through greater um, economic security. Great, thanks. And John Michael, I think you get the last question. Great, uh, and I just wanna mention that I'm doing my best to support the, uh, the brewing cooperative here in the Twin Cities. Shout out to Fair State. <laughs> Um, so I uh, just want to wrap up uh, and, and thanks again for, for everything today and, and for the questions that we didn't get to, uh, we'll, we'll pass those along to uh, our speakers um, uh, by email so we can get uh, people some written responses uh, back uh, quickly. But for my last question to wrap us up is uh, probably for Jay and Rob, what advice would you give to another co-op or utility looking to start out on the, the on-bill financing path? You want me to take that one, Rob? I do because you did it at Santee Electric, and all I got to do is watch you uh, after you'd already set it up. Okay. Yeah, I would highly um, recommend that they look at the rest program. You know, we've seen co-ops a lot of times offer just loan programs for heat pump replacements, and they go in and change just the unit out. Sometimes they don't focus in on duct work and other issues at the house, and it really doesn't solve the member's problem. You know, it helps. Um, I call it wasting electricity efficiently then. <laughs> you know, they may have a higher SEER unit, but if, if you don't look at the house as a whole system, I think you're missing that. So I would urge them to reach out to REST and look at the loans and, you know, whether it's the tariff uh, model like pays or help my house or something. I think they're all valuable models and things to look at and consider. Great. Well, we are uh, just about up to our limit. And um, let me just thank Rob, Jay, and Kate for your participation today. Excellent presentations, lots of insight, and um, thanks for sharing your experience. Uh, and thanks for doing it at a, a, at a stressful time um, and taking Jay and Rob, in your case, taking time away from serving your members and Kate um, serving all of the members of NCBA CLUSA. So thanks a lot. Thank you, John Michael, for joining me today. Um, just a couple last things before we wrap up. 
The first is um, everything that you just heard and saw uh, will be available at ESI.org. Um, some of it very soon, some of it a little bit. It'll take a couple days for us to get our written summaries up there, but please make sure to visit us online. Um, while you're there, uh, it would be great if you uh, signed up for our newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. It comes out every other Tuesday, and it's a great way to keep track of ESI, but also keep track of climate policy developments, um, mainly in Washington, but we also try to feature things like success stories and case studies of on-bill financing programs that John Michael and his colleague Miguel Yanis uh, work on around the country. Um, and it would mean a lot if you would take a few moments to uh, complete our survey. Um, you see that on our screen here. Um, we do read the responses and we do try to improve and we try to come up with, um, with briefings that uh, not just inform policymakers, but also um, are timely and are um, uh, of interest to the general public as well. So if you have a moment, please fill out the survey and um, thanks in advance for doing that. Um, we are one minute past one o'clock. It's time to wrap up. Thank you to Armory and Sydney and Dan O'Brien. Uh, and Amber and Anna and Ellen and Bridget uh, and Anna, oh, excuse me, and uh, Abby, um, and of course, John Michael and Miguel uh, on the Onville financing team for all the hard work that went into today. Um, we will be back tomorrow, I think at two o'clock, um, to learn about biofuels and the bioeconomy in rural areas. And then we'll be back on Thursday, back at noon Eastern time. Um, to learn about rural areas and how they're going to be coping with um, the threats of flooding while also continuing to deal with the threat of the pandemic. So thank you very much. I hope everyone has a great rest of your day. And um, thanks so much for joining us. Hope to see you back here tomorrow.